We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. would encourage you to take your Bibles and, uh, and join me there. Chapter 20 is where we're at. And we have some really spectacular verses in front of us this week. I was struck by a number of different things as I studied and uh, was, was amazed at uh, how connected these passages are. Um, they're, they're, they're all woven together. And Luke, uh, I, I really have a new appreciation for the way he assembled this material. This isn't just uh, you know, haphazard as it's uh, put together. There are themes and connection points that flow from verse to verse and section to section. So I titled the sermon, The Astonishing Brilliance of Jesus Christ. The uh, Astonishing Brilliance of Jesus Christ. And I think what we'll see as we move through these interactions is just how amazing it is to have the divine mind speaking into our human context. You think of this. I mean, we're studying the attributes of God on YouTube together. Um, Think of perfect knowledge. Think of infinite wisdom. And as Jesus is speaking these words, he speaks uh, in his humanity, but with his divinity. You you see all kinds of displays of the godness of the God-man. For instance, how he can see hearts. He can see right through people, and we're going to see that again this week. Uh, These responses, these these answers that he gives are just... Nobody could have anticipated this. No one saw this coming. And as we saw last week, we'll see again this week. Uh, Jesus is just truly, divinely brilliant in how he conducts his interactions in this teaching ministry. So let's pray, and we'll jump into these verses together. Lord, we're excited to be able to now move our attention to your word. Uh, We have sung these words that we know are true from your word. Uh, We have delighted in, in our hearts together to express what is right and fitting, which is your praise. You are worthy of this praise. And uh, now we, attend, uh, we, we draw our attention to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit and the inspired word that is open before us. Open our eyes to see your truth with a capital T. And stir our hearts to respond in a way that would honor you and bring glory to you And make us more like Jesus, we pray, as we do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with the first section. I I call this the tax trap. The tax trap. Um, Kind of a transition verse from last week in verse 19. Look at how this goes. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, as soon as he had finished telling this parable of the wicked tenants in the vineyard, that, uh, uh, that the, the vineyard owner then returned and, and destroyed. Um, he said this parable to them, and they, they perceived that he was basically unmasking their wickedness. But they held back because they feared the people. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. Okay, now this is going to be interesting that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. That would be Pontius Pilate. Their goal is to get him arrested, uh, to force his hand, 
the people think that he is there to put down the Romans. And they think, well, the, the, the best way to deal with this Jesus is to just, in a sense, make him have to deal with Rome head on. And we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to put him before Pontius Pilate and catch him in a, a kind of a trip up as he responds to our traps. So uh, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if, if I'm in the crowd and, and I'm, I'm maybe a part of this group, I'm kind of thinking, guys, I'm not sure this is the best idea. Haven't you heard every single attempt to trick Jesus, to trap him, to, to, to try to get him to, to stumble into something has failed? And not only failed, it's been embarrassing. It's been uh, horrible on the people who have tried this over and over. It's a bad idea, but they are hell-bent on destroying Jesus, and uh, their logic is really not functioning as it ought. Uh, so they continue with this. So let's see how this unfolds. These spies who are, they're there to kind of give some pretense and, and pretend to, to be followers. Listen to what these spies that they sent, uh, they say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and you show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. You just got to pause here. This is all buttery, right? It's just all warm and, 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 and fuzzy, and, and Jesus is just not, he's not in the business of falling for this kind of thing. He he, he's he's going to see right through this. Uh, these guys come in, and they think they're all smart, and they're trying to butter up Jesus, and basically this is just flattery and falsehood. They don't believe this. If they believed this, then they certainly wouldn't be trying to trap Jesus. One of the things we know is that you cannot lie to God and get away with it. You, you cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. There is no way to trick Jesus. It's, it's literally impossible. You, it can't be done. And they're about to find out just how impossible it is. This is their question that they ask. Now, every time we come to one of these, these traps, these tests, you've got to see the, 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 the brain power, the collective brain power that's gone into this attempt. This is their best attempt now. Everything else has failed, and now this is what they've come up with. And honestly, it is, it is really good. This is an excellent question, a, a really great trap to set. Is it lawful, Jesus, for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, in the mix of this group that's trying to trap Jesus, you have some Pharisees, and then you have some Herodians, we learn in, in Matthew and Mark. And the Herodians are those who uh, are really uh, not that opposed to Caesar, right? They're, they're not all having that big of an issue. They'd like to see a Herodian king on the throne, but they're dealing with, with Rome, and, and that's okay. The, the, the Pharisees, that, that's not the same for them. There is no way they'd like to pay this, this tax. They hate it. They can't stand it. And yet these groups come together to try to get Jesus trapped. So, they would love for him to say, yes, it's lawful. You should. Everybody should give tribute to Caesar. Period. Because if he does, he is going to be wildly unpopular with the masses 
who hate this tax. It's the poll tax. And when it was given by Rome, there was a massive rebellion. And this rebellion brought about tremendous bloodshed. And it is like every time a Jew was forced to pay this poll tax, basically saying, um, because I'm alive, I will give to Caesar a tax for my, for my life. Here it is, each year. They hated it. And what if Jesus said, well, no, you shouldn't pay the tax. Well, that's exactly what they'd love for him to say so that they can just walk him up before Pontius Pilate and say, hey, here's an insurrectionist. He is trying to divide. He doesn't recognize Rome's authority. The Herodians have their, their win. Here you go. Take him away. How is Jesus going to get out of this trap? Once again, just like last week, we feel like you have to answer yes or no. But Jesus, he sees in the brilliance of the divine mind, he sees exactly the right answer. Here's how he proceeds. He, he perceived their craftiness. He saw right through their words. Their, their flattery didn't uh, get lost on him. And so he said, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar. So just kind of put yourself in the crowd here. Here is Jesus, and here are these quote-unquote followers. They're, they're pretending to be his followers, the spies. And he says, show me a denarius. Now, it's not because Jesus didn't have any money necessarily. The, the disciples had some coins, I'm sure. But he asked them to produce a silver denarius. And so they do, which proves that they have the coinage on them, okay? So they're already being exposed. Even in that just that quick response, he's already showing, well, you guys don't have so much to stand on here. You have a position. So they produce the denarius, and he says, okay, I have a question. There again, he's teaching. He teaches with questions. Whose likeness or whose image and inscription does it have on it? They say Caesar's. And they're correct. This is what it looked like, uh, Denarius of Jesus' day. Uh, Tiberius was the Caesar, and he was the, uh, referred to on this. The, in, the inscription on the Denarius was a, an abbreviated form of this, this sentence. The son of the divine, don't lose that word, the divine Augustus. Okay, that was Caesar Augustus who declared himself God. Now, Tiberius is ruling just after Augustus, and and adds chief priest, okay? So just as an added insult to the Jews on the very coin that they are required to pay to Caesar with this poll tax, they are giving, as it were, tribute to a man who says he is representing the Son of God himself, and it's not the God they worship. It is a self-declared God who refers to himself as the chief priest. Wow. Wow. So Jesus puts this in view. There's his image. Jesus says, Then render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Wow. This was not a yes or no answer like they were hoping for. This is far more complicated. First of all, he's already shown that they are carrying the coinage, that they are trying to 
trap Jesus into, uh, into giving loyalty to or not. And now he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What's, what's he done? He has just shown that there is, in fact, one God. And Caesar is not that one. He has shown in his response, Caesar is not God. He, he makes it clear. If Caesar's image is on the coin, hey, give him the coin. If he says, everybody gives me all my coins, give him the coin. But then he adds this. He adds this. Give to God the things that are God's. And you have to ask the question, well, what are the things that are God's? What Jesus has done is he's drawn a connection between the image of Caesar on the coin and the very image of God stamped upon every single human being on the face of the earth. Give to God the things that are God's. What is God's? All of you. You carry his image. You're his. You're made in his likeness. He owns you. He has rights over you. So what does he want? Your heart. Your worship. He wants to be your treasure. He wants to be God in your life. This is an incredible response. And they get it. I mean, they, they see what he's doing. Are you going to bow to Caesar or are you going to bow to God? That's really the question that he's asking. You can give to Caesar what you want. And this is where the kingdoms collide, don't they? We are citizens of a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. We are Christians. We carry the name of Christ long before we carry the, the title Americans, right? We, we are Christians. And so we live in a kingdom in part right now. But as we live in the not yet, we find ourselves in an earthly kingdom, just like they did back then. So we are called to abide in the kingdom, do the things that are called in the kingdom. And so we have governors, don't we? We have presidents, we have overseers, there's, there's structure, and we're called to submit to those authorities and to our best, the best of our ability, obey and honor those who are appointed in leadership. However, ultimate submission belongs to who? God. Render to God the things that are God's. And so ultimately, our allegiance doesn't end with Caesar, does it? It goes to the one to whom Caesar will someday bend the knee. God himself. The only God. They were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent as well. This is, this is a trend, isn't it? I mean, this is becoming expected. Trap sprung, but not on Jesus. The very people who tried to trap him fall into their trap. Jesus confounds the wisdom of his day. Now, they move on to the next trap. The resurrection trap is what I'm calling this. This is just a, an ongoing attempt as Jesus is in Jerusalem 
as he's teaching, all of the greatest minds of, of the day are coming and they're trying to, to, to beat Jesus, to get him trip up. Verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And I love that Luke put that in. That's, that's a helpful note. He says, okay, now there was another sect in Judaism, the Sadducees. And, and the joke is always, they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. That's a helpful reminder, right? They're sad, you see. They believe that this life is all there is. And as a result, they find it easy to throw off all of these laws and restrictions. Nah, don't worry about all this stuff. Just basically live your best life now. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? There's no judgment. There's no eternal answering for anything that you do in this life. So go and live it up because this is all you get. That's their message. That's the way they lived. And so, ironically, they probably weren't sad, you see, at least in the, in the short run. They were living free, but we know that's not really free, is it? That's just another form of slavery. They come now to test Jesus, and here's what happened to the Sadducees. They, <laughs> these, these guys, they really didn't care so much about the law. They just especially liked to prove the Pharisees wrong, because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, and so they would come up with these really silly questions to try to, to ask one another and confound the Pharisees. And they were always thinking of the, just the dumbest questions to, to entertain. And here is one that they had found pr proven oh, year after year after year. And so they're like, hey, well, we got, the, we got the silver bullet. We'll throw this one at Jesus, and we will get him to pit himself one side or the other. He'll either have to take our side, that there is no resurrection, or... He'll take the Pharisees' side that there is, and we'll trip him up because no one has successfully answered this question, this riddle almost, as it goes. So here they go. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, now, that word is a, a, a very carefully and purposefully used uh, word. It, it's, it's, it comes with great respect. It's not common for them to use this word, certainly of a of a rabbi that they did not respect at all. So they're starting along the same attack line as the spies. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, that that man, uh, the man must, uh, must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay? So you have brothers, uh, the, 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 the wife lives, the brother dies, there's no children, the other brother is supposed to come now and basically bring his um, sister-in-law under his umbrella to provide for her because in this day, um, the inheritance and the name was a big deal, a big deal. Leveret marriage, that's what this is. Uh, just a crash course throughout history. We see this actually before Moses, okay? So this is functioning as part of a, a Jewish tradition that honors the Lord, even back in Genesis 38 with Tamar and the evil Onan. Uh, Moses gives the law in Deuteronomy 25. Then in the book of Ruth, you see this function, right? The kinsman redeemer. There was no kinsman redeemer to come and to cover uh, Naomi. And so Ruth comes 
And here is Boaz, and, and God provides for, for Boaz and Ruth to come together, which then gives a name and an inheritance, and all of this. It's just a beautiful thing. So they're referring to this leveret marriage practice in Jewish tradition and law. Now the story, the story gets a little silly from here. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. At this point, we're beginning to think this lady is dangerous, okay? Afterward, the woman also died. And here's their, this is really what they're after. In the resurrection, which they don't believe in. Okay? You see, see what's going on? In the resurrection, therefore... Whose wife will the woman be? For she had, uh, for the seven had her as a wife. And they're just like, oh man, we got him. We got him. None of us can answer this. We think resurrection is so silly. Those Pharisees, they can't answer this question. We've gone around and around on this. Watch Jesus. He's going to fall all over himself. Not so. They ridicule the resurrection. They're mocking it. It's, it's so outlandish a story that they're, they're, they're just mocking the resurrection. And the Pharisees are not fans of this. You, you know in the crowd the Pharisees are like, come on, man. What? Really? You got to do this now? How's Jesus going to respond? He said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, okay, Jesus has tipped his hand. He does, in fact, believe in the resurrection. He says, uh, to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. He goes on. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Okay. So Jesus concludes here that though married in this world, in this um, kingdom in part, those who trust in Christ, as we know, the gospel, that he lived and obeyed and then willingly laid down his life to take the sins of all who would trust in him and pay them in full and be buried and then raised after three days and ascend to the right hand of the Father, offering life for all who would trust in him. That, that's the gospel. Those who embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior will, as it were, attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's all of grace. And when that takes place, there is not marriage. There, there's no marrying, and there is no, uh, there's no wedding bands, as it were, in heaven. Now, I remember the first time I heard this, I was like, oh, man, that's brutal. But trust me, if it's heaven, it won't be worse. It'll be far better. That's one of the reasons why at weddings we say, till death do us part. Till death do us part. Now, for those who are married at the rapture, maybe there's a special dispensation for that. I don't know how that works. There is no need for procreation because there is no death. 
There, there's not a, a, a commission to populate and fill the earth with the glory of God. It will be filled with the saints of God in perfect glory as they image him forever. So, he goes on. But let's talk about the real issue, okay? You Sadducees. That the dead are raised, even Moses, who they have just quoted, he points to Moses as well, in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus has turned the argument on its head. He's gotten to the very heart of it, which is, is there a resurrection or not? That's really what they're wanting to find out. Jesus says, let's talk about Moses and the burning bush. Do you recall the exact words that God spoke to Moses in the burning bush? Let me read them for you. I, keyword, two letters, am. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not say, I was. These men have died. These men have died. He comes and he says, I am the God of these men, the patriarchs, your fathers. I am. And Jesus says, that is proof enough. You should know this, that there is a resurrection. Those men live to God. They are alive before God. I mean, we saw this at the transfiguration, did we not? Hmm. A few things that draw from this. One is that words matter. Words matter. When we study our Bibles, we are to be, pre be precise in the wording that we study. A little word like, I am instead of I was, has massive bearing, and Jesus points that out. Words matter. Tiny little words. The tense of those words. And we can also conclude from the whole of Scripture, but certainly from Jesus' proof right here, there is, in fact, life after death. There is a resurrection. So the Sadducees had reason to be sad because they were wrong about the resurrection. Some of the scribes answered, I love this, the scribes are over there, yeah, yeah, we win, we won. These are the Pharisees, right? They can't hold it back. Teacher, you have spoken well. We agree. And then they get the elbow, hey, be quiet, man, we're trying to get this guy killed. Don't say that. This is one of those moments where Jesus' brilliance is so potent that the people who end up slipping up end up giving praise to the, the Savior. You have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The brilliance of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not done. This tough question thing is going on. So I, I kind of picture Jesus being like, hey, you guys, you're into tough questions? Let's dance, right? Come on, let's dance. I got one for you now. I'm going to turn the tables. You want to talk about 
confounding the wise? You, you want to talk about tough theology questions? I got something for you to chew on. And he plants this passage in their minds. And this passage proves to be tremendously powerful, both in the lives of the disciples and of many who were converted after uh, the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which we celebrate this weekend, uh, Pentecost Sunday. So let's look at this. David's son and David's Lord, verses 41 to 44. He said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? So he begins with the question, and he explains. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and we're in literally Psalm 110, a very messianic psalm, David says, in verse 1, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, I remember the first time in Sunday school as a young guy that I came across this question, I had no idea what was going on. Someone said to someone else, and someone's got a footstool, and I'm like, what is this? What does it mean? Jesus knows exactly what it means. This is the, the implication of his victory. Let me show you by inserting uh, some, some helpful words here. The Lord, Yahweh. Okay, this is God. God himself. We would, we would say God the Father. This is the Father. David is speaking. Said to my, that's David's Lord. The Father, Yahweh, said to my Lord, that would be someone else. Well, who, who else is there? The Son, the Messiah. This is a messianic psalm. So David said, The Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Where is the Son seated? He is at the Father's right hand. There will come a day when he returns and he will put his enemies down. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And all who oppose him will be unmasked. And justice will fall. David prophesies this in Psalm 110. Okay? So, let's break it down here. The son of David, which is a messianic title. This is the herald that the people have been saying, Hosanna! They're speaking of Jesus. They, they, they see this in Psalm 118, the same thing. They're waving palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Even the blind beggar referred to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. So the son of David is also the eternal son of God. This is one of the most explicit God-man uh, passages. The divinity and humanity of Christ coming together in the incarnation. 
He is the eternal Son of God. He was there when David was reigning. The Son was, and the Father, and the Spirit. He was there before the ages began. And now he is here in the temple, and he is confounding the wisdom of the day. And by the way, he is the only Messiah. Psalm 110 is about Jesus. Which, by the way, I just was struck by this. Even as we drove over here, I I caught this. At the end of Psalm 110, there's a reference to Melchizedek. It says that that Jesus has been established to be in the line of Melchizedek, the high priest, before the priesthood was given. There's this mysterious guy named Melchizedek, and Abraham gives a, a, a gift, a financial gift of worship and honor to Melchizedek. So, if Jesus, in fact, is the son of David, the eternal son of God, the only Messiah, he is also, as Psalm 110 declares, the high priest. Now, rewind back to the inscription on the denarius. The son of God, who is also truly the high priest. He has just completely shredded any claim of Tiberius to be God or Augustus to be God. This is a claim of divinity, loud and clear. So clear as Peter hears these words, they echo back to him. And listen to what he says in his first sermon right after Pentecost happens and he begins to speak and preach, okay? For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And now listen to him explain this for us. It's the best way to interpret Scripture. Just let someone who's writing Scripture interpret it for you. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God the Father has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says, he is the son of David, and he is the son of God, and he is Lord, and he lives. Spectacular gift. What a prophetic psalm. Jesus leaves them, and what's interesting about how he leaves them is they have nothing to say. There's no words, no rebuttal here. He he gives them the question, and then that's all that's spoken. They are completely silent. There's no words recorded. Now, let's finish out here. Uh, Condemning and commending. Condemning and commending. Uh, Verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, don't miss that, it's important. He wants all the people to hear. He said to the disciples... Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues. They place of honor at feasts. And then he says this. Think, think, think if you're out there and you're a scribe. You're one of the lawyers, the legal guys, right? The, the, the hardcore text Torah people. They devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. 
they will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus is in the, the work here as all of these groups have kind of come around to attack him. Little by little, he's just pulling the rug out and revealing these people. The Sadducees, well, they're all stuck on the resurrection. Well, there is a resurrection. There goes that rug. The Herodians, they want the taxes, they want the compromise and all of this, and there, there goes the, the rug out from them. Render unto Caesar and unto God. Here we go with the scribes. How do you sum up this kind of behavior? It can come across very religious. It, I'm sure, would have come across very impressive. But behind it, as Jesus kind of pulls the curtain back with what he sees, right? Not everybody can see what Jesus is seeing. He sees the heart. And what he sees inside is pride, greed, cruelty, and hollowness. It's just hypocrisy. These people are not interested in the glory of God. They are interested in the glory of themselves. Their righteousness is self-righteousness, and their works are all about them. It's the stuff they have done that they are so excited about. And they love to compare. They love to compare because they believe they are better. And in comparison, they feel better about themselves. And by belittling others, it just seals the deal. So when they stand up to pray, they say things like, Oh God, thank you that I'm not like this guy, or this guy, or this guy. When they go into a house, they are expecting to be able to sit at the best seat. Now, do you remember when we had the table up here? You remember where Jesus was and his little message? I just love how the Gospel of Luke gives us these moments, these experiences of Jesus' teaching. He's summing this up, but he's calling these guys out right to their face. Hmm. Now, in contrast to this, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this widow has put in more than all of them. So these, these passages are, are great compare and contrast. You have this, this arrogance, this self-promotion, this belittling work, this total hollow hypocrisy. And then over here, it continues. Here they are. They're making a big deal. Look at me. I'm dropping in the money. Is everyone looking? Ching! You know, lots of noise. Fanfare. The rich people making a big deal. Dropping in lots of money. And then here comes a poor widow. She makes her way up to drop in two small copper coins. She drops them in. Is anybody impressed? in the crowd? Does anybody notice what is happening here? Kingdom currency most often is not impressive in the world economy. Kingdom currency comes in the form of two 
small copper coins. It doesn't, doesn't come in the form of the big fancy fanfare, dumping heaps. Jesus sees it. He sees the heart of this widow. He knows exactly what's happening. And the one man who saw what truly went down there, he was impressed. This widow has put in more than all of them. Now, dollars and cents? No. No, that's, that's not how we calculate it, right? I mean, how, what do you mean, Jesus? What do you, two small copper coins? No, no. Jesus is like, no, I'm talking kingdom currency. Hmm. They all contributed out of their abundance. She came and gave out of her poverty and put in all that she had to live on. She came to worship. She came to give generously, lavishly. Where the others here, they gave just out of abundance. What is Jesus saying? You see the contrast here? The comparison? She gave more than all of them. There's humility. There's sacrificial generosity. And at the very core, there's heartfelt worship. This widow is in love with the Lord. And she holds nothing back. She's not there to impress people with who she is and what she does. She is there to worship the glory of God. And she gives the most lavish gift that was given. Hmm. So many things to glean from these verses. I was just thinking about how if you step back and look at all of these, these passages kind of together, they give us again a glimpse into this kingdom reality that Jesus has been preaching His whole ministry. And as these days come to an end in Jerusalem and, and, and time is short, we see this again and again. The kingdom. Do you see what He sees? Let's look at these. We carry the image of God. We are His creation. He owns us. He has rights over us. We've rebelled, friends. We have taken the image of God and instead of glorifying God with it, we've dragged it into the mud and we have declared our own sovereignty. We have put ourselves on the throne. This is sinful. It is offensive to God and it's wrong. But God has, in His great grace, made provision for sinners to be forgiven. He has allowed such a glorious gift that His own Son, the Son of God, would be called the Son of David and come and do the work necessary to pay for our rebellion and sin and be raised after three days such that we could be counted as those who will be included in the coming resurrection. Those who have been radically changed. Those who have been changed from the inside out. Not just some righteousness that we put on to impress people with. That's, that's empty and hollow. No, truly 
transformed from the inside out such that we are joyfully, humbly, generously worshipers of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, what a king we have in Jesus. What an amazing, all-wise, all-glorious, gracious king. I just say this. If you go toe-to-toe with Jesus, you will lose. You will lose. But why would you ever want to? Think of the gifts that he's given. And like the little widow who came with all she had, we come with empty hands. What, what do we have to bring to the table? Nothing. He has everything. And he says, come. Come. The work is finished. The door is open. Turn from your sin. Bend your knee to the king. And you will have life. You will know what it means to have purpose. Not to just waste your days living for this short little life, but investing these days and all of the gifts that God gives into eternal future realities. The king is on the throne and he's coming again. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of these verses. We thank you for the the glory that we see in these these incredible teachings of our Savior. Father, thank you for the grace of Jesus, just even the patience of him to, to put up with day after day these silly, little, almost annoying attacks of these various groups. We thank you for his persistence in finishing his course as he set his face to Jerusalem to lay his life down so that he could pay for every sin I ever committed or ever will commit. Lord, we thank you for the gift that that Jesus gave, and it's coming. We're going to see it soon as he is betrayed and, and then wrongfully, falsely convicted and then raised up and crucified. An innocent man who laid his life down so that he could pay for my sins and the sins of all who would trust in Him through faith. We give praise to this glorious King. Oh, Jesus, we love You. We delight in You as our Savior, our Lord, and our King. And we pray that You would find us faithful. Find us to be not hollow and self-promoting and all about our glory, but Lord, help us to just live and delight in Your glory as our King, as our Savior, and our eternal Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.